Instituting Grange Gorman is the second in the Grange Gorman Histories podcast series, exploring the histories of the Grange Gorman area of North Inner City Dublin. Over the past 250 years, Grange Gorman has been the site of a workhouse, a prison, and a large psychiatric hospital. And now this site is being redeveloped as a health and education campus for the HSE, TU Dublin, and the local community. Grange Gorman Histories is a public history project of Dublin City Council, Grange Gorman Development Agency, HSE, local communities, National Archives of Ireland, Royal Irish Academy, and TU Dublin. The project provides a series of opportunities to contribute to the important work of uncovering, cataloguing, and commemorating the history of the site and the surrounding area. Given that the histories that we explore in this podcast involve histories of confinement and mental illness, there will be reference to the historical treatment of people with mental illness and people with intellectual disabilities. The access page for this podcast includes links to appropriate support organisations for anyone who may be affected by that content. Also, some of the language that will be used in describing these histories is contemporaneous language of that historical period. This terminology is no longer acceptable. However, to give truth to these difficult histories, it is important to use the terminology of that time. Its use is applied strictly within context. The year is 1989. It's the Friday, 10 days before Christmas. The crowds are thronging Dublin's Henry Street shopping area to the cries of the street traders and the glittering displays in Arnott's windows. Barely a kilometre to the west, but it might be another world. A different scene is playing out. Fifteen of Dublin's older citizens are on the move. One by one, they are being stretchered into ambulances and whisked away from the building that for some has been a short-term hospice, for others, home for half a lifetime. The place is St. Brendan's Hospital, Grange Gorman, Dublin's main psychiatric hospital. Once bursting at the seams with over 2,000 patients, numbers are now barely a quarter of that and falling steadily, as the new doctrine of care in the community sees large mental hospitals in Ireland and all over the Western world being wound down towards closure. These 15 patients were the last of many thousands of Dubliners who passed through the doors of Grange Gorman's lower house, some lodging there a few days, others remaining for decades. It is in this building that the history of statutorily funded public psychiatric care in Ireland begins, so it is only fitting that its closure, after 175 years, 9 months and 15 days of continuous service, should be marked as something of a momentous event. The last remaining ward has fallen silent. Serried ranks of beds lying empty under fluorescent lights and the obligatory crucifix. The chairman of the Eastern Health Board, in full chains of office, turns the weighty brass key in the front door for the last time, as the RTE cameras capture the moment for that evening's 6-1 news. RTE News 15th December 1989. The lower house probably had the worst reputation of the sprawling Grange Gorman complex, but this Dickensian remnant will soon be a faint memory.
St. Brendan's, as it was known, will cease to exist to all intents and purposes. The day of the larger institution is over, thankfully. In fact, Dickens was a mere toddler when the building, known originally as the Richmond Lunatic Asylum, opened in 1814. The new asylum was conceived in a spirit of optimism as a national solution to the shameful conditions in which people suffering from mental illnesses had heretofore been held. Scenes of shit, stench and straw, both in the Hardwick lunatic cells, attached to the nearby house of industry, and in prisons and bridewells all over Ireland. Politically, this is a project without precedent. The central state played a minimal role in the provision of public welfare at the dawn of the 19th century. The workhouse network was as yet 25 years into the future. Medical hospitals as we know them now existed mainly as voluntary and mostly small-scale enterprises. Yet here was a building on the scale, though not the grandeur, of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, funded by central government to provide for a doubly marginalised cohort, the mentally ill poor. The building's design was entrusted to Francis Johnson, then Ireland's preeminent architect, whose better-known works include the General Post Office, the Chapel Royale in Dublin Castle, and the ill-fated Nelson's Pillar. Johnston would go on to provide the innovative design used for nine new asylums built across Ireland in the 1820s and 30s. But his design for the Richmond Asylum was something of a hybrid, a range of pioneering features contained within a rather old-fashioned courtyard layout. Brian O'Connell, healthcare architect who was heavily involved in work at Grange Gorman during the 1980s, explains. It was quite a narrow span building. It was built with a kelp limestone from the site itself. This was built during the Napoleonic Wars and it's interesting that at that time timber was in very short supply because the ordinary timber supply routes were not open, which meant that native timber had to be used. And native timber, you couldn't get the lengths of native timber that you could import. And therefore, a lot of the roof trusses and so on were deficient because the theory of them wasn't fully understood. The carpenters who did them did the best job they could on them. By the dawn of the 19th century, moral management or moral treatment was emerging as the dominant theory in the treatment of insanity. Reformers, led notably on these islands by the Quaker community, promoted the revolutionary idea that kindness and moral guidance could do more to cure mental illness or disturbance than fear and coercion. The physical restraint of patients, shackles, manacles and the like, would be banished. Instead, the building and its landscape assumed growing importance as part of the therapeutic regime. Johnson was designing a building whose scale and purpose was without precedent in Ireland. His design for the Richmond Asylum demonstrated some knowledge of international theories around moral treatment. Physical restraints were designed out, ventilation and basic heating designed in. Patients were categorised into wards divided by gender, class and acuity of illness. Most patients occupied a single room or cell, opening onto corridors or galleries, with access to shared day rooms and outdoor airing courts. Convalescent patients could exercise or rest at leisure in landscape gardens in front of the building, retreating to convenient south-facing verandas when the weather turned. It was an altruistic vision, and this in a period many decades before the first public park. Other features seem less liberal to our eyes, but were entirely in keeping with the thinking of the day. The windows in the individual cells of the lower house 
and other early asylums were high, too high to offer a glimpse of anything but the grey Dublin sky. They served the supposedly therapeutic purpose of insulating the patient from unwanted stimuli, but also the practical purpose of keeping expensive window glass out of reach of any destructive impulses. Una Sugru, conservation architect and project coordinator with the Grange Gorman Development Agency from 2011 to 2021, explains. Francis Johnson had designed quite small, high-level windows that were enlarged and lowered by his cousin and successor, William Murray. And we were able to identify where that had taken place. We discovered mysterious voids and ventilation points along the south wall of the ranges, um, which seemed to have been related to an early heating and ventilation system. The building may not have been fit for a king, although the so-called madness of George III is credited with raising the profile of mental health care generally in the period. But it was named for a viceroy, the Duke of Richmond, an English peer who, during his six-year term as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, also lent his name to three other newly built Dublin landmarks, a barracks, a bridewell and a penitentiary. Irish independence saw the Richmond name go the same way as Queenstown and Kingsbridge, but his coat of arms lives on over the entrance door, carved for the ages in hard Wicklow granite. On the parapet, uh, when the previous covering was removed, we discovered a granite blocking course with the name of the asylum, the Richmond Lunatic Asylum, carved across it. The word lunatic spelt with a K. This was quite an antiquated form of spelling for the time, and we wondered whether it had been a mistake. The stone was in poor condition, so has been recovered with a flashing and protected. But the carving is still there. Originally established for the reception of lunatics from all parts of the kingdom, it did not take long for the knowledge of there being such an institution in Dublin to overwhelm this single national asylum. The house filled, was extended, and filled again within two years of opening, prompting further parliamentary intervention and ultimately the creation of a nationwide network of some 29 purpose-built and publicly funded mental institutions across the island of Ireland. The Richmond Asylum was thus demoted from a national facility to a regional one, serving Dublin city and county and the counties Meath, Wicklow and Louth. As the National Asylum Network developed, these counties would also peel away in turn. Meath in 1855, Louth in 1933, and Wicklow in 1966. But such drafting off of patients to other asylums provided only short-term relief to a perennial problem that would plague the Richmond for most of its days, overcrowding. As the lower house marked 40 years of service in 1854, it would be joined by an impressive new building on lands recently purchased to the west of Grange Gorman Lane. The new Richmond, or Upper House, was intended as a curative asylum for both sexes, a tacit admission that the earlier building was suffering from an accumulation of chronic or incurable cases. In the event, the organisational convenience of separating the sexes on either side of Grange Gorman Lane saw the shiny new building, given over exclusively to male patients, leaving the women to make do with the ageing lower house. Every one of them 
had a full and rich and unique life story, but we are afforded only a brief glimpse of each via the admission notes recorded by the institution's formidable bureaucracy. Patient, A, B. Age, unknown. Occupation, sometime charwoman. Admitted, 23rd of June, 1890. Supposed cause of insanity, religious excitement, hereditary. Patient threatened to fling articles in a place of worship. The patient claimed that she did not throw anything. She claims one woman beat her with an umbrella and a man named Hayden said she was a witch. I earned a living for the last year as a charwoman and used to pay for a room until I went to Mercer Street. I was dreaming that I saw Calvary last night, but sure I know it was a dream and no vision. I had an engagement before I came here from Mrs. Kyo in South Richmond Street to black leather fenders and grates, which she'd done before. I'd often worked in laundries. My father and mother died when I was six years old, but I had an uncle who took care of me and my sister. My father was a carpenter and my uncle too, but then he died and I went to the South Dublin Union and my sister went away to Australia and I haven't heard of her since. I went to the workhouse school, though I wouldn't think I got much in the way of schooling. I got knowledge from God of his service, of attending to his word and instruction. I saw the Blessed Virgin three times with a child in her arms, three times in Fishamble Street with different colours in her dress and angels all around her. I'd like to go out so as to go to Mass again. Second interview, one week after admission. Patient's manner is improved and she does not complain. By the close of the 19th century, Grange Gorman was bursting at the seams. Most of the old individual cells in the lower house had been knocked together to form dormitories accommodating as many as 29 women apiece. Not a square inch of space was left unused. 600 patients and 75 staff lay down to sleep each evening in a building Johnston had designed for one-third of that number. New sanitary annexes doubled the number of toilets shared by this mass of humanity to a total of 24. So grim were conditions in the lower house that the former penitentiary, hastily reconfigured in 1897, the building known to us today as the clock tower, was seen as offering the better standard of patient accommodation. Report of the Inspector of Lunatics, 1899. In consequence of the overcrowded conditions of this asylum, buildings constructed of timber and iron were erected in 1894. Grange Prison was transferred to the Board of Control late in 1897. The prison buildings thus acquired have been altered to accommodate 350 patients, as well as to provide further administrative accommodation. They have been fully equipped and furnished, and the RMS has displayed great energy in converting an apparently very unsuitable building into a useful annex to the asylum. In 1891, the governors purchased Portran Domain in North County Dublin as the site for a new 1,200-bed asylum. But even the additional capacity created by this, the largest civilian building project ever undertaken in Ireland and comparable in ambition to today's National Children's Hospital, would not be sufficient to remedy the situation. The state of the Richmond was even debated in the House of Lords on three occasions in 1895, with the key question being whether it would not be better to build another new asylum in a more healthy locality rather than to spend a large sum of money in repairing and altering an old building on a bad site.
the old building on its bad site prevailed. The value which would be realised from selling the site as building land would fall far short of the capital value of the existing bad buildings. For all its ills, the lower house remained an indispensable asset. The inspector of lunatics observed at the time, it is more than probable that it will be required for at least the next 10 to 15 years, so that the expenditure for its improvement must be looked upon as money well spent. All the while, new admissions kept crowding in. Patient, L. H. Age, 30. Occupation, dressmaker. Admitted, 18th July, 1890. Supposed cause of insanity. Too much silence. Hereditary. Patient lives on a small income, doing a little needlework, but never knew anyone, nor spoke to people as she feared they would annoy her. Her windows were open at night and she was afraid of falling or throwing herself out through nervousness. She did not know which. She used to have visions about the room being enveloped in water and cats roaming around her at night, caused by some people persecuting her. Persons who had some connection with her past life wanted to destroy her. I suspected a good many people of turning the electricity on, but I can't name anyone in particular. They can also put a cramp in my hands and feet and broke a tooth by the same apparatus. Before I get up in the morning, I know and feel what's going to happen to me during the day. There's another patient here named Corcoran who tells me that electricity is also used on her. She appears quite sane and I'm sure she's still under the same influence as myself. This patient is not anxious to leave the asylum as she feels that she is not in so much danger of persecution as outside. The building's working life would exceed the inspector's naive prognosis by another 80 years. Like the apocryphal Central European village, rooted in place amidst shifting geopolitical borders. The lower house served the Richmond Lunatic Asylum in a United Kingdom, Grange Gorman Mental Hospital in a free state, and St. Brendan's Hospital in a republic, itself seemingly immune to change as the world evolved around it. The open hospital movement of unlocked doors and tumbling boundary walls came late to Grange Gorman. It was not until 1966 that the chairman of the Dublin Health Authority ceremoniously toppled the first of the skillfully placed stones in a symbolic gesture of the new attitude towards the treatment of what is now called psychiatric illness. The gesture occurred within a year of the appointment of Ivor Brown to the newly defined role of chief psychiatrist, a committed reformer whose initiatives changed the shape and nature of mental health care in Dublin City over several decades. In 1970, the hospital came under the control of the Eastern Health Board. The task of the decade was to transform a model of care little changed in 150 years, shifting the focus from the large, monolithic mental hospital to a diversified network of outpatient clinics, day centres and supported hostels, with acute admissions wards relocating to general hospital sites. But with these new initiatives monopolising scarce capital investment, there was little left to prevent the continued physical deterioration of legacy buildings such as the lower house, let alone improve the lot of the residualised patients living therein. In 1982-83, I was asked to undertake a development review of Grange Gorman as a whole. 
The lower house was an interesting building. It was the Cinderella, so to speak, of the campus at that stage. The function I had at that stage was to assess the building itself, which meant that I had to go into the, if you like, the concealed spaces of the building. I had to survey the building and therefore work my way through it. It was a building of very limited future use for clinical purposes, and I was reviewing it for clinical purposes. And I came to the conclusion that while the annex building was an extremely important building and, and warranted preservation and would be suitable for administration of that complex. You could keep the nurses' home, which Vincent Kelly had built in the 1940s, and that the whole new clinical block could have been built on the location of the lower house. Realising the impossibility of evacuating 400 frail and bedridden patients in the three-storey lower house in the event of a fire, the Eastern Health Board sought additional funds from the Minister for Health for emergency fire safety works, but were denied. The Board then framed their choice as lying between spending monies to improve fire precautions and cutting back expenditure in other areas, for example, child health, grants to voluntary organisations, domiciliary services such as home helps, meals on wheels, etc. Conditions in the lower house and throughout Grange Gorman continued to deteriorate through the 1970s. It took a public protest by doctors, rare in an era when institutional power expected a deference rather than challenge, to refocus political attention on conditions in the hospital, culminating in a lengthy dull debate in November 1978. McGill Magazine, October 1980. In an investigation of the state of mental hospitals throughout the country, which included visits to 12 of them, we have found that most of the larger hospitals are in a state of physical disintegration, oppressive congestion, demoralisation, often squalor and inadequate staffing, and the conditions were entirely inadequate to begin to cope with the problems of the patients. Most of these patients are in the literal sense outcasts from society. 10,000 patients are long stay, and most of these will die in hospital, having spent 25 years and more, often over 60 years, in the same hospital and even in the same ward. Four out of five of them are single, and the vast majority of them never receive a visit. But at a time when public services everywhere were under pressure, mental hospitals were a low priority and their long-stay patients lower still. Minister for Health, Charlie Hawhey, Doyle Aaron, November 1979. Would that some of the marches that have taken place, the banners that have been waved, the drums beaten about, for instance, the role of the general hospitals, had been undertaken to procure improvements in the district mental hospitals. Public sector budgets in the 1980s were, if anything, tighter than the decade before. The achievement of those managing the lower house would be measured not in improvements in the service, but in daily evading disaster. It took until 1987 for a team to be appointed to resettle patients to alternative settings, but more than half were still in residence on a fateful night in November 1988, when only the quick reactions of a staff member prevented a minor fire becoming a major catastrophe. The urgent task of decanting the rest took a further year. The buildings had another problem, that because they were narrow 
and cellular buildings with a series of interlacing cells, they were very difficult to bring up to standard in relation to fire. Uh, and that fire, being trapped in fire in those circumstances, you can imagine, you'd have to go through a series of locked doors and other groups of people to get to the one that was on fire. And quite interestingly enough, there was a fire in the lower house uh, and that that fire was contained, uh, which is the policy, design policy for fire, is to hold it in position until you have time to deal with it and stop it from spreading. And this did actually happen. The door was closed. The people were evacuated into the next chamber. The door was closed and then the fire could be coped with. The lower house ultimately spent a remarkable 175 years in service of the ideal that the cure and care of people with mental illness is best achieved within a residential institution. By the time its doors closed for the final time in 1989, its dangerously decrepit fabric was seen to represent everything that was wrong with traditional psychiatric care. The demise of the lower house was framed by the Eastern Health Board as a cause for celebration, a very public demonstration of the new ideology of mental health care. In 1986, RTE television cameras had visited Grange Gorman to film the demolition of several annexes. The chairperson of the Eastern Health Board presided over the event, even taking the controls of the demolition excavator in the ceremonial inverse of laying a foundation stone. The demolition of units L, M and N symbolises the end of an era. Today sees, in practical terms, the beginning of the end of the large psychiatric institution. It was a claim that will be echoed by her successor three years later, as, on the 15th of December 1989, the cameras returned to record the last patients being carried out and the key being turned in the door of the lower house for the last time, which returns us to our opening scene. RTE News, 15th December 1989. Only 15 patients remain in the section and they left today into new mental handicap centres, some in their own local areas, community nursing homes for old folk and small psychiatric units attached to general hospitals. The departure of patients from the much maligned lower house to happier settings seemed like a straightforward good news story. But as ever, there was a twist in the tale. Most of the ambulances that swept down the lower house's potholed avenue in the week of December 15th only travelled about a hundred yards to another building on the same site. In the rush to declare the lower house finally closed, its last residence would have to pass Christmas 1989 in a hastily reconfigured dance hall with little more comfort and joy than the decrepit building they left behind. The public perception of progress took precedence. The patients made do, and the lower house looked impassively on. It's one of the saddest things, and it's just come, it's just come back to me when I was thinking about it again, was... The top floor of the lower house was out of commission at that stage. It wasn't being used for patient accommodation, but it had been used as a repository for the belongings of all the people who had died there over the years. And the number of sort of battered suitcases tied together with string and no handles on them, uh, and the number of paper bags with things wrapped up in them and people's names written on them 
and names written on the uh, on these cases. There was something horrendously sad about that. This was all the, this was all that was left. The only trace that was left of a human life, a life like my own, which had been just found itself in different circumstances. The closure of the lower house in December 1989 drew the curtain on a decade during which government cutbacks saw the closure of an array of smaller historic hospitals across Dublin. Dr Stevens, Jervis Street, Mercer's, Sir Patrick Dunn's, St Lawrence's, The Richmond and Bagot Street. Many had been household names in the city for two centuries or more. Dismay at their closure was usually tempered by outpourings of pride and nostalgia for a proud history of public service. By contrast, the Eastern Health Board positively revelled in the closure of the lower house, publicly damning its memory in the most strident terms. The board's chief executive described it as Everyone's nightmare vision of a mental asylum with thick grey stone walls and 40 bedded wards, infamous for its stench and the dungeon-like architecture whose demolition would be symbolic of a revolution in healthcare. The Eastern Health Board's desire to positively level it was not merely a commercial move to allow the site to be sold for redevelopment, but an ideological statement in itself, an attempt to erase the built evidence of an unhappy past. Having regard to the sacrifices that would have to be made, that in all the circumstances, it was probably the one that drew the short straw in terms of being demolished. There was already a perception, and Ivor Brown was very strong on this, and I have great admiration for him. I mean, he did see that a better world was needed. This was not a repository for dumping people in, uh, and that it was very important that uh, places like that, forbidding buildings, buildings that had a, a very negative spirit to them, that those should not be encouraged to continue for people who were already sufficiently disadvantaged. But for all the destructive rhetoric aimed at its decaying fabric, the story of the lower house does not end in Christmas 1989. The Eastern Health Board proved as slow to demolish as to decant, and the increasingly derelict building attracted a new kind of notoriety as an informal refuge for Dublin's homeless. The cruel irony was that vulnerable groups for whom the old institution had once provided actual beds were now left to seek shelter amidst its collapsing ruins, with sometimes fatal consequences. Intervention from central government finally saw three sides of the lower house demolished in 1994, but the entrance front was spared and would ultimately be listed for protection in the Dublin City Development Plan. The following year, it would enjoy a brief moment in the limelight. Like a film set, very long, but shallow in depth. And indeed, a film set was what it had been during the mid-1990s. It's northern facade standing in for the GPO in Michael Collins' The Movie. The lower house languished in quiet dereliction for a quarter century more, as patient numbers across St. Brendan's continued to fall. In February 2013, 
199 years to the day from the opening of the lower house, the last patients left the last part of the old hospital for the light and airy surroundings of the new Phoenix Centre. It was another day for the history books, but one marked by rather more respect for the privacy and dignity of the service users concerned. The redevelopment of the campus for what would become the Technological University Dublin then gathered pace. The lower house, by now a roofless shell, would be the subject of a spectacular rescue by the Grange Gorman Development Agency. Floors had collapsed or nearly collapsed throughout the building. Slates had blown off. There was extensive water ingress and outbreaks of rot. Trees and other vegetation were growing out of the masonry, which had significant cracks in some areas. I think that it was early in 2014 when a large portion of roofing, slates and battens, blew off, flipped over and landed on top of one of the end blocks or pavilions, as we call them. I'm afraid we gave serious consideration to contacting the dangerous buildings section of Dublin City Council and asking them to inspect the site. However, Moira Mellerick, then Director of Construction and Procurement, and Michael Hand, the CEO at the time, took the brave decision to commission a team led by Cody Architects to design and implement a stabilisation programme for the Lower House. Today, the lower house revels in its new use as a student hub for the university. Its venerable walls reverberate to the din of student life. The south-facing verandas used by recuperating patients have been reinstated as sunny conservatories. Piano music emanates from practice rooms used by the TU Dublin Conservatoire. Mark Garrity, TU Dublin Estates Manager, explains. The main use or the main um, function that we require that building to for, for ourselves it is to, to attract students into the area to utilize the, the canteen, to utilize the sporting facilities. And that's why we've centered our student services like student union societies in that building to draw them down into that part of the site and to make that part of the student experience. Against the odds, this early Georgian asylum, a lesser-known work of one of the greatest Irish architects, has been reinvented. Conceived in a spirit of progress and optimism, its reality deteriorated to the point that it came to represent all that was wrong with institutional care. It came to be despised, yet for most of its life it remained utterly indispensable. It offered asylum for those who lacked any, a respite for families who had exhausted their own mental and material resources caring for a loved one. It was a cold and harsh and congested and chaotic refuge. Yet, for 175 years, the capital city would not pay for anything better and could not live without it. It's probably unfair to read history out of time, 
by reading it by today's standards, by saying it was an appalling arrangement. Actually, it wasn't. It was probably a fairly humane arrangement, given the alternative, which, which really preceded the 17th century, or the 18th century preceded it. And today, it is transformed again, from unhappy relic of all that seemed best forgotten, to a valued heritage asset. This is no cold stone monument to the lives and deaths of a poorer and harsher Ireland, but a warm, living memorial which ensures that their story will be told and retold to successive generations through the ordinary daily ritual of inhabiting the same spaces that they did. The, the reaction from students, visitors, dignitaries, anyone who's come to see the building have been stunned by the results from what was in essence a derelict uh, and possibly would have would have been in other periods of time demolished uh, it has been turned into a living building when buildings have a difficult history such as psychiatric hospitals workhouses penitentiaries jails Magdalen laundries, industrial schools, they can still be successfully adapted for new uses whilst respectfully revealing their past history, as is being done in the lower house. This careful act of conservation is also at its heart ideological, but in service of an ideal which argues that the buildings of the past and the difficult stories they tell are better told than buried.